Welcome to the second series of The Man Who Was Scared to Death. In this audio documentary, I talk to people who work and spend time in the presence of death on a daily basis in order to help me come to terms with my eventual demise. In this episode, I talk to Oliver Starr, a GP and a man who also works as an expert witness providing his medical opinion in GP clinical negligence. We sat down to chat, appropriately enough, in a London cemetery. Okay, well, Oliver, introduce yourself um, and tell us what you do for a living. Right, so I'm Oliver Starr. I'm a GP by trade, so a general practitioner. One of the few fields in medicine where we see, you know, newborns right up to uh, people at death's door in their old age. Alongside that, I teach medical students in London. I appraise other GPs, which is quite interesting. Well, we're sitting here in a, in a cemetery in East Finchley. Over a million bodies here, apparently, sitting next to a very nice grave. Start with your work as a GP. When, when did you start that? Was it, uh, and how much training? I mean, I would never have a clue how much training it would take to, to actually qualify to do that. Yeah. Well, you can become a GP a few routes. I, I, did a, I wanted to be a surgeon initially, but found that a bit boring, actually. The, the learning curve is just almost flat. So, you know, typically I think it'd be about four years hospital training and then a year training in a GP surgery, but it's a little bit different. And I've been doing that since 2009. Okay, so what drew you to that area of life? I mentioned I'm a writer, which is obviously something quite prosaic and fully removed. You can just do it by yourself and not have to interact with people. Being a GP is slightly different. And of course, also you're dealing with people who aren't well. What is there something from your past or, you know, growing up, did you always feel that you wanted to get into that area? Uh, not at all. I wanted in medical school to be not even a specialist, but like a super specialist. Just, you know, you could come and see me about your left eye, but I wouldn't be able to help you with your right eye. <laughs> um, and actually, I, I, I went, I sort of shadowed various real, real specialists who only dealt with one particular condition. I, I even, I went to New York. I shadowed the world leading expert in a, in a very rare type of eye cancer. You know, people would come to see him from all over the world. I'm sitting in his office in Manhattan thinking, God, this is boring. <laughs> <laughs> so I realised, I thought I'd, better, I'd rather just be a jack of all trades and know a little bit about everything. The atmosphere in these places, um, you see on TV, the, uh, the recent Adam Kay TV show, I actually saw him live as well, I've, you know, read the book, and it does seem incredibly gruelling. Does it take a special kind of person, do you think, to be able to put up with working on the wards, especially at deserted hours? Ironically, I actually preferred working at night than during the day. Actually, there was quite a nice atmosphere. It was a lot quieter, there's less people around barking orders. The nurses seemed more friendly. <laughs> and uh, ironic, you know, people got a bit better actually overnight and on the weekends. And when we came back on a Monday morning, we'd start giving them medicines and things and doing tests and making them feel worse again. <laughs> so then the GP work... Do you have your own practice? You know, how, how does that work? Do you, obviously you're part of a, of a wider um, organisation. I used to work in a practice and rapidly found it wasn't for me. You're in an, I mean, it is for some people, fair, fair use to them. You're in an office all day saying next, please. Whereas even now doing this podcast, we're out in the fresh air and the sun. And I, I didn't really like it. So what I do now is one day a week, I visit people in their homes all around 
uh, Hertfordshire. So uh, across a wide range. So I see how things are done in lots of different GP surgeries. Then I also work in an urgent care centre, which is just people walking in really without an appointment. That could be a newborn baby or it could be someone really old. And then I teach medical students and I do these uh, medico-legal reports. Yeah, do tell me a bit about that. I was reading your CV beforehand. <laughs> Essentially, presumably, when, when it was something to do with malpractice. Is that where we are? Yeah, so this is sort of, I think it came in in the 80s, brought over from America, people say, and is now a huge industry, which is uh, professional negligence. So, And it, it does tie in with what we're going to speak about, death, because, I mean, I see one side of it where I see GPs being sued frequently, not the same GP being sued. <laughs> I think we should probably get the name down. But it is an industry and there's a sort of an emerging feeling that if something bad happens or if someone dies, someone must be to blame. Now, people have the right to sue their, a doctor and so, you know, they might not always realise that it wasn't necessarily anyone's fault. Um, but there seems to be an aversion to death and an idea brewing that I think if someone gets say cancer well why wasn't it picked up earlier why did I get this could it have been prevented or at least diagnosed sooner and it, it's not always that simple and unfortunately it leads people maybe I don't know how it works if it's no win no fee they think well I might as well sue someone I mean I, I'm, I'm sure there's more to it than that but that's something else I'm involved in yeah very interesting, actually, because I've, I've had similar thoughts. You know, you hear some obviously tragic tales, and I'm sure there have been many examples of people who have been wrongly diagnosed or, Jesus, had their wrong leg lobbed off, and I'm sure it does happen. But, you know, I get the feeling that you, you think similar to me, that this whole aversion just in society in general about talking about our own mortality and death means that we have this, you know, utter... utter um, focus, laser focus on either blaming someone if it goes wrong or just staying as healthy as possible, which is great. Being healthy, obviously, is, is probably more beneficial to your mental health and just a, living a long, happy life. But, you know, how much more do you think as a society we need to open up about talking about our own existence and mortality? Well, yeah, we could get people listening to your podcast. That would help. Well, look, I'll, I'll just talk about medicine because that's what I know. But starting right at the beginning, even at medical school, there was this idea that doctors were invincible. We, were, we never talked about doctors' health or, or stress or anxiety or depression that doctors all get. I remember we were, I was in intensive care once as a med student and the, the, the lady had the x-ray machine because they were doing a portable x-ray. And she goes, OK, everyone, everyone stand clear. You know, you're meant to like stand right at the side so you don't get the radiation beams. And the two consultants just stood there by the bed, just chatting. Because I thought... And I've, I briefly thought, I must have been about 20. Oh, yeah, no, they, they won't get affected by the x-rays because they're invincible. And, you know, there was this idea that a surgeon could come in at five in the morning and do an emergency operation and then do a clinic at nine in the morning. He didn't need to sleep somehow. Uh, and it was, you know, some of our professors must have been in their late 60s. I assume they've died or, or became ill. Doctors are... They make really bad patients. Mm -hmm. And doctors are not immune to being hypochondriacs. So you've probably heard of motor neurone disease. I have, yes. And that can start off by giving you little twitches in your muscles. Mm -hmm. 
and neurologists are such hypochondriacs that there's now a condition, doctor-perceived fasciculation, where so many neurologists think they've got motor neuro disease and they imagine these little flickers in their muscles. They end up seeing a colleague who has to say, look, I've, seriously, I've done all the tests on you that you don't have motor neuro disease. Hypochondria is an interesting condition. It's something I don't particularly suffer from. I've touched wood as we're sitting on someone's bench, always been you know, reasonably healthy. Presumably you must have seen plenty of people who, who, who you are unnecessarily at your door or at your office. I remember um, being with a consultant ENT surgeon and he said, ENT is 90% reassurance. So they've even been referred by the GP. They get to the clinic, there's nothing wrong with them. And I would go so far as to say, you know, you could say cardiology is 90% reassurance, gastroenterology, anything. Uh, most of what I do as a GP is deal with people who are worried they're ill rather than actually are ill. Health anxiety, I think, seems to be... Well, I don't know if it's any more prevalent, actually, because when you read books from the 50s, there's this famous... Uh, psychoanalyst called Ballant that most GPs would have heard of. He was just documenting cases of health anxiety from the 50s. It's nothing new, but maybe we've got, unfortunately, doctors are very risk-averse and they end up doing lots of tests on these people with anxiety. And it's a bit like taking your car to the mechanic. Have you ever taken your car and they don't find anything wrong with it? You will never get out of a mechanics without them saying, ooh, well, better replace this. If you see enough doctors and you have enough tests, you will always show something up. Those, that's what we call false positives. That just causes more worry. Does this maybe tie in with the malpractice thing? Do you think doctors are having to be far, you know, they can't let someone go just in case something goes wrong? I, I think so. When you survey doctors and ask them what, what makes them do tests it's usually they they reply fear of complaints and fear of litigation interestingly it's the complaints that are more personal and harder to deal with because they really cut to the core and no one told us about this by the way at medical school <laughs> um in a sense if you're sued as a doctor you're, you're covered with all your lawyers and insurance but the complaint letters can be very hard and um but we all get them, and we get used to them, really. Do you think that your attitude towards... Well, I should start by asking, actually, what is your general attitude towards uh, death and mortality? I know we were talking earlier that you're, you're an atheist, so presumably you're buying into, well, where we are here in the graveyard. That's where you're going to be in uh, however many years. Yeah, or maybe just, look, you're, you're dead. I mean, these are beautiful gravestones, thousands of pounds. I mean, I'd rather just spend that when I'm alive. Yeah, I, I sort of... Uh, atheism was brewing in me in my sort of early 20s and probably tipped over in medical school. There's this, um, you know, there's a, a quote, you know, if you want to become an atheist, just go into a children's hospital. You know, why would you have... I think Stephen Fry did this on YouTube. Bone cancer in children? Really, God? You know, this is if he was meeting God. Really? You know? Being an atheist and thinking about death is probably, it becomes more disappointing 
I'd say, because I'm I'm absolutely certain there isn't some kind of afterlife. There's no heaven. Uh, no one's looking down on you. You know, do you think oh, Grandpa's looking down on me when I won that cricket tournament? No, he's not. Once you become an atheist, life becomes pretty much, you know, life's very finite and a bit pointless. Now, you know, these really enthusiastic scientists like um, Brian Cox go, well, you know, we're on this amazing rock zipping through space at 30,000 miles an hour. Isn't it incredible? It's like, well, yeah, but I've still got to do the washing and empty the dishwasher when I get back. And I think that has affected my view of death as a doctor, that I, I'm i very matter-of-fact with it now. And, you know, I'm pretty honest with patients. So quite even just yesterday, someone said, am I dying, doctor? <laughs> said a 22-year-old woman who's perfectly healthy. I said, well, not not now, but you will die probably in your mid-80s. And I'm not, I think... A fair bit of what I do as a GP is palliative care, which is a great specialty. In my opinion, it's probably the best application of medical science, just to help someone have a good death. We did actually speak to a managing director of Cardiff. Uh, Cardiff uh, yeah, I've listened. Yes, he's, um, he was remarkable. Health from Germany, and maybe and he put it down to himself having this very frank, honest opinion of it um one of the things i couldn't quite get my head around you know i've always assumed always hoped that you know when you go there's this white light and that's it you're snuffed out i'm not saying obviously i'm not saying there's anything else but there's a sort of calmness near the end where everything slows down and that maybe that's just my hollywood film watching but you know he confirmed though some people do go out kicking and streaming hence why you need of palliative care to be you know so effective otherwise it can be you know really upsetting I suppose for everyone involved yeah and I think if you're in a hospice you probably will be very nicely sedated but you do get unfortunately some agitated deaths it's really distressing I think they're behind us in America on this I could I'm a few years out but I think a third of all people who die in America die on intensive care they just cannot be let go and I still think, even in Britain, with, with quite a strong palliative care field, outside of that field, there's a real reluctance, like an allergy, you know, to use a medical word, an allergy to death, that some doctors uh, really feel the need to try and keep going with everything. And the, the joke is, you know, why, why, do, why do coffins have nails in them? to stop the oncologists opening them up, giving them one last round of chemo. But look, let me tell you a story. I visited an old man a few years ago who had really advanced bladder cancer. And his last appointment, the specialist had said, we'll, we'll try one more, you know, we'll try again. They, they flushed this chemotherapy inside the bladder. He said, we'll try, we'll try this again, and then um, I'll see him in three months. And I was called to do a home visit a couple of weeks after that appointment. And this, this lovely old man, was just basically groaning in bed just in pain and I had this amazing talk with him just saying you know have you had a good life I said and he's you know more than twice twice as old as me and he went I've had a fantastic life I've got th two wonderful kids I've got, his wife was there as well I said are you ready to die because I can I feel like as a I don't know if GPs are a bit more candid about this. He said, I'm absolutely ready. I've had, a, I've done everything I want to do. So I made a few phone calls. I got all the right people involved um, with some help from the hospice nurses. He died in his own home a few weeks later. And I phoned his wife afterwards. 
And she said, yeah, everything, just how he wanted. But, you know, I'm amazed it took me a home visit to do that and why that didn't happen several months ago. I don't know if some doctors view it as a personal failing, especially surgeons maybe. I don't know. I've got no no evidence to back that up. But what I see every day is this desperate need to keep people alive. Sort of slightly misguided belief in medicine. So a lot of doctors really think that a pill can can make you live longer, like a statin or chemotherapy or you know, blood pressure pills. And you think, well, actually, all these pills, they can reduce the risk of X happening, but they don't reduce the risk of Y happening. So you'll always end up dying at some point just with something else. Is the difficulty then that it's impossible, obviously, to see through the, the eyes of others? You know, you'd think that having such a pragmatic attitude towards life, you know, that it's finite, that at one point we're going to die, hopefully later in life when we've done the things that we we feel we need to do but until you're in that position you can't know exactly what the other is thinking yeah and uh, as you I, I, th- I think I think differently now than I did when I was a junior doctor 20 years ago uh, 19 years ago and often if I if I do a visit and there's a f- there's the family there so three young kids or grandkids they will push me and push me to do more send them to hospital, do a scan, do blood tests. And if I, if I ask them to step out so I can just talk to this old man alone, I generally find the elderly are absolutely fine with dying. And even this one amazing old lady, I said, I, I thought, shall I ask her? I thought, I'll just ask her. I said, how long do you think you've got? And she said, not even any hesitation. I think I've got about three months. And her husband was, she was one of these very wise women. Her husband was a bit, looked really bamboozled. And, and I thought, wow, imagine being, say, 84 she was and knowing that. I said, have you got anything you need to do? It's like, well, I need to get hold of my nephew in Australia or something. Like, okay, well, you should do that now. And I, what is amazing is even very frail elderly people, okay, you know, maybe dementia uh, excluded. They are absolutely aware of their own mortality. They're very realistic. And often they're ready to go. Uh, and what's keeping them going is the children are sort of cajoling them one last round of chemo or one more course of antibiotics. Presumably that experience then has has completely shaped, or not completely, had, had a large part of shaping your attitude towards your own existence and, and, and the acceptance part of it by being around these people that, that, that pass on. Do you think it would be good for people to, to have more of that experience, just sometimes the general public, you know, to know that it happens all the time? Because it's very much shielded from us. We see it in the films and the TV and we read about it in crime books and you know the statistics, you know, someone dies every two seconds, for example. Mm. But to me, as I think I, I mentioned to you before, you know, it's happened quite infrequently in my life to, to, to lose loved ones, fortunately. But because I'm not shown it, I'm, I'm not deeply, you know, not, not seen it on a daily basis or weekly basis, could that have anything to do with, you know, what appears to be like an utter fear of even accepting that I'm going to die? Well, I remember my youngest one came back from school and the headmistress had given a talk about her grandma who, who was no longer with us, in inverted commas. 
And my daughter came back and went, you know, you know, her grandma's no longer with us. And she was talking about her. And, and this kept being repeated. We said, do you know what that means? No, she's not with us. It means she's died. And even the head teacher, who's amazing, just hadn't said, my grandma is dead. I maybe, I mean, imagine if they taught that to, to, in school. You might, people might approach their lives a bit more productively, maybe. I mean, look, sticking to medicine, which is my, my field, I do think there's a case for all doctors to do one placement in a hospice. Placements are usually four months now. Because I would hazard a guess, I don't think most surgeons or oncologists or A&E doctors have ever been in a hospice as a doctor. Most GPs have, a lot of GPs would have done, and I did a placement as part of my training. But other than that, it's only the palliative care career doctors. I think it would be hugely beneficial. I was going to ask, actually, as part of any of your training, was the subject of death discussed and how to deal with it? You know, did you have specialist training in bereavement and, and grieve, you know, grieving families or anything of that sort? Yeah, I would say we did, actually. Quite a lot, actually. There's, there's these stages of grief they teach you. There's uh, quite a lot on communication skills of breaking bad news. And I still lean on that now. You know, you can teach that stuff. And that, yeah, absolutely. I would say when you become a junior doctor, you're so busy and you're, you're following orders so many times through the day that you probably lose sight of palliation, I would say. But there is a fair bit of training at medical school but I would say that seems to disappear a bit when you qualify and it's not part of any core training program that I know of it was an option for me as a GP which I took to get more of a, a silly question out of the way something that I wanted to ask many a GP do you treat yourself could you have to see another GP is there a law against treating yourself I mean presumably you know you know all the answers why wouldn't you just stay at home and do it yourself yeah well when you're young, you know, when you're a young doctor, you think, I will never have to see a doctor. And, I mean, like the GMC say, you, know, you, you should never really prescribe anything for yourself. There's probably a fair few times, if I hadn't been medical, I would have gone to the doctors. With, with my kids or my wife, but because I'm medical, I might, might check them over. But what is interesting is, like I said with the neurologists thinking they've got motor neuron disease, no doctor is immune from the psychosomatic symptoms that patients just seem to have all the time i mean even me i i had this pain like low down in my tummy a few years ago and i thought i I just i ran through all the medicine it went on for months i thought oh my god you know this is it i've got some kind of dreadful cancer i've got sarcoma of my you know inguinal ligament and i've got a six months to live (laughs) so i paid to have a scan you know uh, luckily, I could afford it just to have a, and the the radiologist did this scan on me, and he said there's absolutely nothing wrong. And the next day, the pain went away. <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh no, I'm just like everyone else. And and this has happened to friends of mine who are doctors. You know, they have scans, nothing's wrong. They get part of their leg feels numb, and they think they've got, and then it goes back to normal. You know, you, you get brought down to earth. I think having children and getting to your 40s, you get that. When I was a young doctor, I did think I was invincible. Practically immortal. 
<laughs> Don't worry, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir. And then, and then you know, there's been a few books but with doctors who have died young from these terrible cancers. And you think, oh, we're, we are just normal humans. It's, yeah, it's very interesting. You'd like to think you have a bit of a step up from the competition by doing what you do. But I suppose the main, you know, what you say, one of your main learnings is, is, is how to be around death, be it predominantly old people have you sort of experienced that in, in younger people in, in your career or you know the more sort of tragic what we'll call more of a tragic side to it yeah yeah and that's that's really sad a few years ago i did a home visit to a, a guy in his mid-20s with a brain tumor it was completely inoperable by that time he was in bed in a hospital bed and he couldn't see through one of his eyes and i just had a chat with him now, that old lady who knew, you know, I think I've got three months, is a really positive thing. Wow, you know, you've had all your life, you know you can plan. Can you? And I just came out of that visit thinking, can you imagine being 25 and knowing you've got three months? And it just, I thought about it the whole day and I told my wife when I got back. And that's not even paediatrics. I mean, can you imagine working in paediatrics? And this is where I think you're either an atheist and you think, this is just it, we're mammals, disease happens. Or you become religious and think, well, these things are sent to try us. And they've left this earth, this world at at the age of six, but there'll be another world for them. I think whatever gives you comfort, I suppose. I suspect that was a question for me. I'd go for reincarnation. I mean, that would be the ultimate, you know. You'd have no knowledge of your previous existences and you'd just keep zipping into to a new soul new like the Dalai Lama of sorts I know it's Buddhism isn't it but essentially I mean reincarnation could be anything that but I suppose the way I rationalize it uh, which is not medicinal at all is that presumably we didn't exist before we started existing and then we blipped into existence and then presumably we die and then we stop existing so what's to say we're just not going to blip back into existence since we didn't exist for all eternity before them well what's to say we're not doing that is just is any proof at all of that so i challenge you know who who were you oh i was a peasant in the 1800s tell me what 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 was it like oh it's terrible well where where did you live i don't know you know i mean it's you know i don't believe in that at all but from my point of view as a doctor though you got to you know you you are you're meant to ask someone do you have any spiritual beliefs and it's always tricky when they are at the polar opposite of you so if they say, yeah, I'm a diehard atheist, I'm a big Christopher Hitchens fan all over YouTube, and I go, oh, yeah, me too, Christopher Hitchens. But if they say, well, yeah, I really believe that, you know, blah, 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 we're, we're here for a reason, I say, oh, okay, okay. And I'm thinking, really? Come on, that's nonsense. But you've got to really keep that from yourself. Religion and medicine just do not mix well. Going back to one of our former conversations about the, you know, some people old being much more comfortable in their own mortality, how do you see getting old? Because... It's something actually ironically, given that I wake up every morning with that brief two seconds of not knowing where I am, thinking, oh, and then I remember I'm going to die at some point, and it really brings the day down. I've actually got no problem with being old because ideally I'd like to go on forever. So the aging for me doesn't really have any emotional impact, but I know it does for a lot of people. Getting old and, and obviously everything that comes with it is something that particularly scares you. The only thing that would scare me is if I wasn't, if I didn't have good relationships. What I love is a home visit to an old old person. Everywhere you look, there's photographs of the grandkids and the great-grandkids. And on, 
often on their phone they've got speed dial they've got you know graham david and they're like they're not even children because the children would be 70 if they're 90 they're great grandchildren or yeah that would be amazing you know that's my one fear is let, let me just tell you a story i was a house officer so that's the first year of medicine and i was on late at night and i i was you know you're given a list of jobs and i had to take blood from this old guy in his mid-80s and i sneaked into his side room about half midnight and he was deeply asleep and i sort of tried to stir him and he was asleep i thought oh, i've got to take blood because the, the one it, it, you, you get this massive sort of sense of shame if you if you haven't done the bloods for the next morning i'm trying to take blood from him and nothing was coming out uh, okay i'll try the other arm Nothing's coming out. and and i looked at him and just in front of my eyes he just stopped breathing and he died and you know i you know no you know nothing was unexpected he was very frail he's very but i thought oh you know what a terrible way to go like in the side room at some random dgh with some idiotic house officer trying to take blood from you with a painful needle at half midnight i really don't want to be in hospital you'll be hard pressed to find a doctor who wants to be admitted to hospital ever <laughs> you're hard pressed to find a doctor who even wants to see a doctor but in terms of getting old i'm not really no I'm, in a way i'm quite looking forward to it i'm quite interested to see the tech that we have then wow like could i get a hologram of my great my grandson in the lounge will they be able to sort my knees out <laughs> i'm not sure tech would ever exist for that and just um you know it, it is one thing that actually mobiles are good at you know is keeping in touch with people and whatsapping and video calling i've got this patient i used to visit who did video calls with their daughter in australia so that is the one good thing about about iphones okay so quickly on your 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 medical teaching when you, you talk to the students you, you said that you did get a fair amount of, of teaching about the fact that you're working in a in a deaf centric industry should we say do you have people dropping out because they just you know they realize they've made a big mistake and 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 this the whole depressive nature of having to do with people who are ill and you know by you know people who might die sooner than they should is just too overwhelming actually talking to families and patients about death was something i found very rewarding and still do i my hunch is if people are going to leave medicine it's not because they've seen sad things probably because of the uh, work life balance or lack thereof or the political haranguing of us or the very very slow learning curve once you qualify it's probably a lot of other things being fairly unemotional is something that was drilled into us very early in the dissection lab i think you interviewed someone who was who did dissection for medical schools and we're in the first year we're in the first semester so we're like 18, all wearing white coats, and this place smells really bad. It's like this horrible, like a dentist's smell, but even worse. And you're looking at these body parts that have been preserved in chloroform and then kind of sliced open at various different levels. We all just stood there as if we weren't bothered. Uh, just gonna, and, and then you like, just pull open this guy's pericardium, would you? And you, you open it. You feel, feel it with your fingers, you know, the tutor says. Go on, feel it with your fingers. And you're to pretty quickly, I became totally detached to gore. So, you know, seeing someone's guts open on the operating table, I would doesn't bother me at all. Is that because you know they're going to go back in? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, 
trauma in A&E, blood, guts, puke. It, it's, I don't think any doctor bats an eyelid about that. And so you become quite uh, detached, I would say. And that might actually be a good thing because then you can talk to people about death and you can be the, uh, the logical one with the facts and they can be the emotional one. Do you have a preferred method that you'd like to, to bow out of this, this crazy life? In Well, there's a, this is, there's a joke that says, I want to go how my grandfather went, peaceful in his sleep while his passengers screamed and yelled for help, desperately clawing at the emergency exit. Well, look, let me, everyone says they want to go quick, don't they? Most people. Someone you interviewed said she wanted to be shot in the back of the head. That was the woman who cut up bodies. Presumably by a, some kind of psychopath. That's a bit bit shocking. So the thing is, if you go quickly, which we do see in medicine, this is a subarachnoid hemorrhage or typically something in your brain or a heart. I mean, heart attacks don't often actually make you drop dead these days. At least it's quick for you, but it's highly traumatic for the family. If it's slow... It's usually bad for you, but the family get more used to it. Let me just tell you a story. I saw this really frail old lady in her mid-90s, basically existing in a hospital bed in her lounge with carers, you know, giving her washes in the bed, tiny sips of juice or whatever. And she lived right near the great-granddaughter's primary school. So every day after school... Her granddaughter, who was in her late 20s, brought in her daughter, who was about six, for a drink and a snack and a bit of a play. And this was how this old lady was finishing her days. She laid on her side and every afternoon, Monday to Friday in term time, would just see this six-year-old, her great-granddaughter, playing around. And I just thought, that is amazing. That is how I'd want to go.